Hey, Josh Felber here. Super excited for today's guest. I guys got to watch this. If you've ever been thinking about how should I get into real estate, what are some of those challenges? What are the pitfalls that may have happened? And should I start investing right now into uh, real estate, whether it's a single family home, whether it's multifamily? Today's guest is going to be able to open up all those doors for you. He's going to be able to show some light on what you should, shouldn't do, and where you should be putting your potential real estate opportunities at. And guys, thank you for again watching Making Bank. Make sure you guys share this episode, send it to some friends, like this, comment down below, ask your questions because the guests like to see what people are asking and come on and respond and everything. So thank you for watching Making Bank and taking your time. You are listening to Making Bank, where we uncover the mindset and success strategies of the top 1% so you can amplify your life and your business. business. Welcome to Making Bank. I am Josh Felber, where we uncover the mindset and the success strategies of the top 1% so you can amplify your life and your business today. Super excited and honored for today's guest, Matt Simmons, Avery Carlton, Salvatore Hushimi, Jake and Gino, Chris Prefontaine. Well, we're in 2023. Everybody's saying recession, real estate's going to go down the tubes, may or may not buy. Like, love to start with your insight and what you're thinking and what you're teaching out there. And then we can kind of dive into all the other greatness that you got going on. Yeah, well, the, the economists are going to love me because here's my opening comment on that question. The, the billionaires don't know. The, the economists don't know. If they say they do, I probably run. So I, I don't know what's going to happen. But here's, here's what I do know. Uh, this, there's, there's chaos again, right? There's a little uncertainty again. Yep. Uh, in our favor as investors, the media is screaming recession. I don't know where they're getting that data, but they're screaming it. So uh, all we do know is what? Interest rates went up. A lot of the buyers got pushed to the side who sadly thought they could buy. Demand came down a little bit. That screams loudly for creative financing. So mm, I'm, yeah. I'm happy about it. My wife says all the time, I've married 37 years this year, Josh. And she says, okay, so how does that affect what you're doing? Like she's been saying it forever. I say, I, and I said this, this, this month, this is great. We just have to get out and help a whole bunch of people because they need our help right now. What type of sellers should we be looking for? Yep. I'll tell you where we get our leads. We get our leads, not like on common sources, uh, expired listings. Doesn't matter if it's a multi commercial or residential even though most of ours are residential. We get them from for sale by owners and we get them for, to get those tire lane loads, we get them for the for rent by owner section as well, the advertisements. So, and then if someone says, hey, Chris, I, I get all these leads, you know, or us, we want more, like we, we're more aggressive with our lead flow. Then we start buying uh, niched lists like free and clear. You start, you know, talking to free and clear with a third of them in the United States being free and clear, you got plenty of people to talk to that because of COVID and now the economy, they're willing to sell and they're willing to structure some really cool terms. So, okay, so we've, we, we find our potential seller. What are kind of some of those questions that we need to start to ask to start to formulate, you know, for a creative deal? Yeah, this is good, Josh. This is really the confusing. People say, how do you convince them, right? How do you, how'd you convince that guy to do your bill? You don't convince them. You, the questions you ask and the conversations you have are all around how can I help you solve a challenge or problem in the case of, say, someone financially hurting? Or in the case of this building, how can I help you accomplish a goal that otherwise wasn't done by the open market? This guy put a four-by-eight sign out front here on a busy four-lane road in front of me. And he, he put on the sign for sale by owner, owner financing. 
and has realtors calling him for conventional sales. And he's just like, what are they thinking about? I plastered it on the sign. And right. So this, so he wanted it for tax and estate reasons. So I just talked to him about that. Then the numbers come into play. Sometimes numbers don't come into play the first call because what are you trying to do? And if I can't help you, I'll tell you. You might as well go open market. If I can't help you, I'm going to tell you. And you mentioned um, like tax and estate reasons and stuff. What type of benefits to seller financing is that? Yeah, for him it was, see, picture it. He's debt free, but he has, he'll have capital gains still, but he'll mm -hmm. have it over time on the payments. There's a proportion of payments without getting too crazy here advanced, but there's a portion of the payments that will be allocated to capital gains. It's subject to capital gains. And the rest won't, but he's not getting whacked all at once. And that was right. one of his concerns. The second was, like I said, I think he knew something was up because he literally passed away like two years later. Uh, gotcha. And I think he just wanted things clean, but didn't want to sell it off and get whacked. And now his wife has a cash flow stream every month. No, that's awesome. Okay. So we, we, we find the seller. We start asking him the questions. What were some of those then kind of initial questions that we want to, you know, to use as discovery? Yeah. If it's an expired listing or for sale by owner, it's always, hey, Josh, I noticed you didn't sell yet. Where are you going if it sold? Or where had you planned on going if it had sold? If you be quiet after that, they can tell you everything. Well, I was going to go to Boston. I had my job, but this happened and the realtor couldn't sell. They'll tell you everything. In the case of this guy where he was advertising owner financing, I just said, I see your sign for owner financing. Is that the only way you'll do it and why? And then he basically told me all he wanted to do, including dictating terms. So if you just ask questions about their situation, here's an analogy. It's like you and I talking to our neighbor. Hey, you meet, I meet Josh on the sidewalk. Josh, I know it's your house for sale. Where are you going? Oh, oh cool. When do you need to be there? Oh, all right, cool. What if it didn't sell? Are you going to hang out here? Are you going to look like that's the conversation you have. Very right. open. And then, and then just kind of see where they're at and kind of what their position is. Leverage, or, you know, I mean, I guess uh, with um, understanding who they are, where they're going, and what, uh, you know, it, how tired they are, I guess, is where I'm going. Yeah, because, <laughs> yeah, you said it right. Because how soon do you need to be there? And what if it doesn't sell? Tells you everything, too. Yeah. Right, so you need it to be there. This interesting. If it doesn't sell, what's your plan? And that's mm. where you, we usually come in and I say, all right, then, Josh, if it doesn't sell, I look, everybody wants to sell full price cash tomorrow. But if it doesn't, use me as your plan B. And that's where we get the callbacks. That's great. That's awesome. What, um, you're like, we're kind of asking questions here. You're like, man, I hope Josh was going to ask me this, or I really want to share this information with the audience and everything. Uh, I'll give you just three quick steps, Josh. I think I, it's good for real estate in the show, but it's good for anyone in any business. So three things, pick a, pick a niche or an industry. Not in this case, a niche in real estate that you can get behind. Like in our, in our niche, you got to kind of want to help people and in others. It's less people. Um, number two, find someone in the niche that is where you want to be. And I meant business and personal because a lot of successful people screw their life up and their family up, right? That's not for me. So make sure you get that in the relationship. And then third, put the blinders on for three years. There's just too many shiny objects in real estate and it's easy to get thrown off. And that's when you just get on a treadmill and go thing to thing. If you stick with it for three years and that person can guide you and that person's been through cycles, you'll have a great experience with those three steps. You really will. Yeah, no, those are great. What, uh, so somebody's looking to get into the multifamily space and, and things like that. What's kind of, what should they start to look for? What are the pitfalls and things like that that they need to watch out for? Well, so right now, to be honest, if you're looking to buy multifamily, you're insane because of what I was talking about earlier with, with people, you know, sellers trying to sell at a, at, a, at a compressed cap rate and interest rates where they're at. There's just not a lot out there. Right. Unfortunately, 
you saw a lot of newcomers uh, to this industry over the last two to three years because rates were so mm. low and you know they could cash flow at a 4% cap rate at a 3.5% interest rate. The problem is, is those loans, and they bought with bridge loans, right? Bridge debt. The problem is, is all those loans right. are resetting right now. So my biggest, what I tell people right now is, is be very, very picky and choosy about what you buy. Make sure that your interest rate is lower than your cap rate. So you're not negative leverage and make sure that you, whatever you're buying right now with whatever loan program or debt you're using does not have a prepayment penalty on it within the next two to three years, mm -hmm. because rates are going to be lower than in next, next two to three years than where they're at now. And you're going to want to be able to go in and refi out of that, refi out of that property at a lower rate. The other thing that I tell people is, is don't be looking at a four unit, six unit, eight unit, 10 unit property. Look at at least 20 units, because that's what's going to, that's what's going to cash flow for you and allow you to make profit on it and raise the value enough that you can go in and, and refi out of that eventually and, and put and put profits in your pocket. Gotcha. And then one of the things should people be looking for properties where they have to go in and do a lot of fix up stuff? Is it better just to be like, you know, be able to go in and like, hey, trim up the yard, make yeah. it make it look great, throw some paint on, power wash, and then and roll with it. Or for newbies, you see, yeah, for newbies, mm -hmm. my opinion is make sure you go into something that's occupied very well already. You don't want to go into okay. a property where you have to do a ton of demo or renovations. If anything, it's all cosmetic, right? You want to be able to go in and put new flooring in, new kitchen counters, you know, maybe new appliances, new bathroom, easy stuff like that, right? You don't want to have to demo a ton of units because your CapEx costs right now are astronomical with where pricing is on, on materials and supplies. Uh, yeah, right. So if you have to buy, if you're going in and demoing everything and basically, you know, redoing everything from, from, from bare studs, your expenses are going to be ridiculous. So you're going to have a lot, a lot more expenses because of that. And it's harder to get cash flowing at that point. I mean, any, any, because it's a longer process, right? I mean, you're, sure. you're 12 to 18 months out before you're actually cash flowing because you have basically a property that needs to be completely renovated or gutted. Whereas if you're buying something that has some value add to it, but it's occupied, even if it's only 80% occupancy or 75% occupancy, you have money coming in every month. You, 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 you put tenants in, you know, you, you upgrade or update the units that are empty. You put tenants in those. And as the leases expire on the other pro, on the other units, you can then renovate and update those units. You know, the lipstick renovation stuff, the lipstick updates, um, yep. get those up to market average, put new tenants in there. And now you have a stabilized property. So you definitely want to be buying a newcomer definitely wants to be buying something that's going to be an easy upgrade for them versus, you know, a big, heavy rehab. And then once um, you got your property, you're able to acquire it and everything. And then what's kind of that time frame you're looking at to be able to go refi and then, you know, pull out some cash? Um, are you looking somewhere as well to um, like, hey, once I update some things or make it look fresh, um, be able to raise the rent a couple hundred bucks, you know, a month? Yeah. So for us, our ideal is to be able to, once we close on that property within the first 12 to 18 months, have all those renovations and updates done, have, you know, new tenants in those, in those units at market average so that that way the valuation has been increased in that, in that timeline. And then typically we target 24 months to 36 months to go in and do that refi once we've been able to fully stabilize that property. Gotcha. And then are you guys, uh, your guys are pulling cash out for your investors and you, but also holding the property? Or are you just going to go ahead and or do you guys exit out? No, we hold that property. So we'll refi. What our, our kind of MO, our target is, is 
refi between years two and three, once we've stabilized that property, raised the value through the renovations and, and rent increases, go in, do that refi, pull out that additional equity. At that point, then we return that equity back to our investors so that we try to return 100% of their initial investment to them within that two to three year timeline. And at that point, we continue to hold that property. We're cash flowing on that property for typically five to seven years until we kind of hit that target appreciation mark, that valuation appreciation mark that we that we target ahead of time. And once we kind of hit that point, we'll then we'll then liquidate that property uh, and move on to the next. Awesome. What? Uh, so that's kind of like, you know, if somebody's acquiring a property. What if somebody's like, man, I don't want to deal with all that kind of stuff and. You know, they just want to in, in, in invest money in, so they're kind of they're part of a deal. Like, what does that process look like, and kind of what how should they be thinking in that? Path? So that's that's exactly what we do, right? So that's that's exactly what Sim Capital okay. is. We're, we're a private equity, you know, syndication group where if people can invest with us. They're investing in the real estate, but they don't have to worry about finding the property, underwriting the property, finding the debt on the property, raising the money for the down payment on the property managing the updates and the renovations on the property, managing the tenants on the property. But, and with us, because we are a limited partner type or a GPLP type of structure, their investment is an actual ownership into the brick and mortar, right? So they also get the tax benefits mm. too. So it's real simple. Tax Someone benefits, wants yeah. to invest in the real estate. They can come in and invest with us. The minimum is 50,000. Our multifamily pays a 9% preferred dividend, which they start making basically within the first 30 to 45 days of investing with us. And, and from that point on, they're into the deal with us. They're getting a check every single month. We distribute every single month. We, we, we distribute, um, uh, when we do the refi, we distribute the, uh, their initial investment back to them as well as any portion of the profits that are left over as well at that time. And then they continue to get their distribution every single month until we liquidate that property. So for them, for an investor that wants to invest in real estate, it's a great way to invest in the real estate without actually having to be hands-on and doing it yourself. And you still get the depreciation tax benefits of owning real estate too. What's something you're like, hey, Josh, I really want to make sure I share this with everybody or that you were going to, you're going to get for, out from me today. But um, what's one, one or two last things you want to leave people with? Oh, man, now you're putting me on the spot with something I haven't thought about. Uh, we talked about a lot, I'll be honest. I mean, for me, it's, it's, it, it's really just about educating about real estate investing. Most people think that real estate investing takes a lot of money. And, and a lot of time as well. And and what we have done is eliminated both of those both of those things for people that actually want to get started in the real estate investing. Like I said, our minimum investment is fifty grand. You're going to earn nine percent right off the bat on your money through our preferred dividend, which is at least you're going to beat inflation with that. You know, and it allows people to start investing in the real estate without actually having to go out and do it all themselves. So there's my biggest thing, and and, and what I try to educate people on is is in, if you take away one thing, know that you can actually start buying and investing in real estate much, much easier with less out of pocket than you actually thought. Awesome. Getting into it, you didn't know anything. You know, we're always going to run into challenges and things like that. What did you kind of take away from the kind of those first five? You're like, ah, oh, crap. I know we screwed up here, here, and here. Or I learned this. That's now helping you as you're growing it be more successful and you know do better with all your other properties. So as time went on since we bought our first one to about probably our sixth there a lot of automation tools came out for mm. short-term rentals. So when we first started, I was having to look like every time somebody booked, I would have to call my cleaner and say, you got to go this day. I was having to like sit, sit down with a calendar at the beginning of every month, look at all the dates, send it to her in six different ways. So she couldn't possibly miss one. And everything was done like totally by hand manually. Sure. 
And now like all the property management software automates all of that for you, like syncs with your cleaners calendar. So as soon as somebody books, your cleaner knows all the automation, like all the, sorry, all the communication is automated. So we used to have to every day sit down and say, okay, who's checking in tomorrow? We better go ahead and send them their door code and send them this and that. Who's checking out tomorrow? We need to give them the checkout instructions and have to manually send that. Now all of that's automated. So we kind of like technology and the industry grew as we grew kind of at the same time and it made it a lot easier for us. Uh, but I mean, the biggest mistake we made was not starting sooner than we did, honestly. And, and, and why do you say that? So we could, if we had, who knows where we would be now if we'd started earlier. Uh, we had the ability to start earlier. We just thought okay. like, oh, well, if you're buying a house, you know, it needs to be like your dream house, your forever house. You buy a house as nice as your parents. I didn't realize that I, when I was bartending at the Jackalope in Austin, Texas, and my friends were buying these $70,000 houses on the east side, I'm like, no, those aren't nice enough. Why would I buy that? I totally could have <laughs> afforded it. And those houses are worth, you know, a million dollars now. Sure. So uh, it's just, you know, shoulda, coulda, woulda best time to buy real estate was yesterday and all that. So I obviously you mentioned automation was a big thing. What's, I mean, some of the top automated like softwares, property management softwares to use and what do you look for? So there's a lot of them. We use Guesty for hosts. That's one of the big ones. There's another one called owner res that does basically everything you could ever need a, a piece of software like that to do, except for it's just really hard to learn and really hard mm. to get going. So Guesty for hosts is my favorite. There's also hospitable. There's a few other ones that are like the top five, but guesty is our go-to. Okay. So how did you guys go from like five to what'd you say? 220 or 225, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, units in what five, seven years. Um, so like, how did you guys scale that effectively? And then also, so it's not just like everything's happening out there and it's not working out and all that obviously successfully. So the main piece of advice I have on that is to not live off of your rental income, only just put that back into more properties. And I think where people get in trouble is living off their rental income. So they can never actually, you're living off of it. So you can never use it to go buy another property. Um, for us, the way we did it was we went as far as our debt to income would let us on conventional loans to start out. And that got us to about four and then we started doing, um, we started throwing in single family and duplexes in Chattanooga, which at the time, and those were, these are for long-term now, the Chattanooga stuff is for long-term. Okay. Uh, at the time, you know, you could get those for between 80 and a hundred thousand. So you don't really see, you don't feel that 20% on an 80 to a hundred thousand dollar house right. going out the door as much as you do like a hundred thousand on a, <laughs> a nice big short-term rental. So we started just kind of sprinkling those in and then we got up to like 20 of those. And then we said, well, maybe, you know, we're doing all these little single family deals. Why don't we just do like a 12 unit or 10 unit and find, you know, some multis and start actually making this go a little bit faster. So then we started buying some multis in the Midwest and then, you know, it just accelerated much more quickly because now you're buying between 10 and 50 units in one transaction sure. instead of one after the other. And and then with kind of like your multifamily type units, what do you guys, you know, are you guys looking for a certain type? Are you guys looking to be able to then fix those up and increase rent? Kind of what's your whole focus and goal with those? We typically fix them up and increase rent just because the it 
the way the market's been for the last year and a half, it, it's been so hard to find anything mm. that, you know, you're not finding anything turnkey, multifamily, like not very easily anyway. So the deals got pretty slim. So we're we're down with as long as it's in a good enough area, we'll do like a full rehab on stuff just to get, you know, get that rent up and where it needs to be. Right. Okay. As an entrepreneur, I mean, how should we be looking at different ways to place our money. So, I mean, obviously there's real estate, there's residential, well, there's, there's, there's real estate and multifamily. There's, I'll tell you what, all different York, kinds yeah, of stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll tell you what the New York city guys like, and, and this is, this is something where um, a lot of people don't talk about it, but this is sort of like the lifestyle of a real estate life cycle of real estate. If you have significant wealth and you're sitting on like Josh Felber money, like tens of millions of dollars, you don't want to have 2000 single family homes because it just doesn't make sense economies of scale. But if you're at that point in your life, you're looking for more prominence, aren't you? You're looking for more stature because there's only so many Rolls Royces that's so shallow. Today, people like to show off on Instagram, their networks, they like to show off the assets that they own. Uh, for example, class A, what we call statement assets. Maybe Josh finally wants to be part owner of the Cleveland Browns, right? So that's, you know, as much as they don't perform, that's a different thing that these guys, you know, but they do make money because definitely not. No, of course not. But I mean, <laughs> but that is like a, that's a status symbol, right? That's a st statement asset. You going after that because you know you're getting into it for two reasons. Number one, you can brag to your friends about it. And number two, you're going to be in a mix with more sophisticated investors that are going to help elevate your current business, right? Let's face it. You're not investing in these things because you want to make money. You do, of course. You want the bragging rights, but really, like, especially in like sports ownership and class A real estate, you want to find out who the other people are because all common denominators at some point with wealth creators come down to one thing, and that's commercial real estate. Now, the type of commercial real estate comes in is the speculative. So that's single family homes and that's uh, multifamily. That's a wealth creator. That's where you buy it, fix it, flip it. That's construction. You buy it, you flip it, you change from a class B, you know, class C to class B apartment families, anything with residential. It's a wealth creation mechanism because you're being paid to take the risk with crappy tenants who are poorer than you, right? The wealthy don't like that. People like you want tenants who are richer and more credit than you are because when you wake up in the morning, you're providing for your foundations and special endowments, certainty of cash flow that's coming in. So it's a whole different thing right now. The last thing you want to see is the Felber Foundation and red copper letters be smeared because it can't make a contribution or something for something that was promised because it was in a bad real estate deal. You can't have 40 single family homes in an impoverished area in America fund your foundation. It doesn't make sense. People try to do it. And the reason why they fail is because they don't have the network to get to the higher level into the more sophisticated opportunities, which is where we like to play, which is where you're dealing with commercial real estate, non-residential. A lot of people are scared of residential, the investors I have, because they feel as though the residential uh, tenants have a lot more rights than they do. So that's why they gravitate towards bigger centers like Class A industrial, office, um, statement you know, assets, but also investments that not only have a high perceived value status, but also have other smart shoes in there as well that you can network with. And that's more like commercial office buildings is, is what you're yeah, referencing? Yeah, you know, th things that what, what, we would, what they used to call the trophy assets, that's what we're talking about. So it could be like a skyscraper in, in, in Dallas. Uh, we had a bid right before the pandemic. We pulled it for... Uh, $130 million of a class B to class A office in Orange County, which would have been great. We had great, sexy drone shots of it. 
the pandemic came, we're like, nope, we don't, you know, I said, we're removing the term sheet, we're out. Um, there are other types of, th think about aspirational real estate, like owning, you know, part of a casino or a hotel, like a really nice hotel. Think about it. A lot of foreigners sure. in New York own a lot of beautiful hotels. They trade hands. Some of them make money, some of them don't, because it's a status symbol to say that they own this hotel on Central Park West. Does that make sense? Any last thing, something where you're like, oh man, I hope Josh was going to ask me this question, but I never asked that question or just something you want to last share with everyone as we wrap up. Yeah. So here's something I said on stage not too long ago. Ask me what the second rule of real estate is. Tell us what the second rule of real estate is. Never stop raising capital. <laughs> <laughs> right. There's a few of those out there. Yeah, there are. <laughs> Yeah, there are a few of those out there. But the other thing I would, I would tell people too is that I just spoke in front of my private high school back out east and people were saying, what's entrepreneurship if you could like really put it down? And I think even everyone, you know, I've seen everybody I know has been entrepreneur involved, even myself, is that entrepreneurship is self-improvement in disguise. And if you can really understand that, then you're going to have a lot more fun. If you're trying to stay yeah. static and pigeonholed and like you're an institution that just came out of HP, you're not going to really, you know, go too far. You have to be able to do things that you're uncomfortable with that growth will help you uh, later on down the line, especially when you start working on bigger things like, like I am right now, which is really cool. You know, with where the market is now and, you know, and you hear a lot of everything, the interest rates are going up and, you know, obviously inflation's, you know, out of the, you know, exploding. And they're talking about the housing sector crashing, you know, things like that, just as bad as like 2008 and stuff. I mean, what do we hold off and wait to invest until, you know, till something drops or, or is it still a good time now? I guess that's a good question to start with. Yeah, no, I'll hit that because I think there's a, a major difference in supply uh, if you, you're looking back to 2008 till now, there's a lot more building going on. The building has really fallen off. So there's mm. a big supply and demand difference. And, and I think it's really dependent on the area that you're investing in. I think that if you're in a growth market where people want to be, okay, where there's population and job growth, you're going to be much more insulated than if you're in you know one of these markets sure. where there's been they've been losing population. So I, I think that it always comes down to supply and demand. But keep in mind, this is a basic human need. Okay, we we have seen the most incredible occupancy in years. Okay, in in our markets that we invest in, we have a three hour radius around Knoxville that that we invest in. So I think it's it's market dependent. You want to make sure that the jobs are there, the population is there. You know, the, the growth is going to be there uh, wherever you're investing in. And and look, if there's going to be more opportunities, I've seen this week specifically. I've seen more deals hit this week because I think that folks that were looking to hit the exit, you know, maybe in the next six months or whatever, getting fearful now. And they're saying, let's exit the deal. Now we're mm. long-term buy and hold investors. We really don't want to sell anything. Uh, we want to refire capital back out and keep adding more deals, you know, to the conveyor belt and then get that cost segregation, that beautiful depreciation, and then just keep it going. So that's ultimately our plan. So it depends on your strategy. I, I think the people that are now sitting there saying, Oh, I don't know if it's the right time to get in. Those people are probably never going to do a deal because that, to me, that's always the way to look for an out where I can talk myself into not investing. 
Because ultimately, we have multiple tools in our tool belt. We've done syndication. We've done seller financing. We Most of our deals, we just bought outright, you know, Gino and myself and, and put debt on them. So, But I think there's multiple strategies to taking deals down. We're getting into development right now. And, and the reason we have these different strategies is to stay it's to stay current in any market cycle, any part of the the cycle, because we want to continue adding more deals to portfolio. So, you know, I, I just think that it, it's a little weak when people start using these excuses, because to me, it ultimately tells me that they're probably not going to be successful in real estate because they're finding ways to talk themselves out of it. You need to get educated and then you need to take action. And it starts now and, and when your mindset is ready. So, um, you know, we'll see, we'll see what happens. I, you know, we were, uh, we did a bigger pocket show the other day and they were saying 40% of their listeners, you know, haven't done a deal yet. And really what that tells me wow. is that they're interested. They want to do it. They, they know that, that it's a great way to hedge inflation and grow wealth, but it's a mindset thing. Some of these people struggle up here. I mean, most of the business is one between your ears. You know, it's not a lot of this blocking and tackling right. shit. It's anybody can do it. It's it's where you're going to get your your head right. And uh, I think that's where people struggle many times before they're able to get into multifamily because they think it's for someone else. The only thing I would add to that is it's 80% psychological and 20% mechanical. You can learn yeah. the cash on cash. You can learn the cap rates. You can learn market cycles. That's not very really difficult. The psychological, the personal development is what we really need to work on. And for us, we've been doing boot camps with our students for the last four years, since 2018. And by a show of hands, I wish you got everyone's up there saying, who thought the market was at a high back in 2018? Everyone right. says yes. 2019, everyone says yes. That's what we kept saying for the last four years. And now we're at this point where everyone thinks we're at the height of the market. I think an investor, whether you're investing in stocks, whether you're investing in bonds, whether you're investing in crypto, real estate, you make money when it's markets going up and when the market's going down. You have to understand the market cycle and what type of asset to buy and what type of debt you need to do and what type of exit strategy you have. You need to learn all of these things, whether you're in real estate or in the stock market or any other investment, when you become really savvy, you know when to buy, whether the market is going up or the market's going down. And when the market is going down, you have opportunities. There are a lot of opportunities out there. Problems present opportunities for the entrepreneur and for the real estate investor. So if somebody's starting to you know, look or they've been looking, um, obviously they've got to make the decision, cool, I'm ready to, ready to invest and you know, they're ready, ready to make this happen. What are some of the key things they should start to look for or be aware of uh, when they when they go to invest? I think, Josh, the first thing you need to think of is what are your goals? What are you trying to accomplish with multifamily? Are you trying to do it on the side where you're using it as a retirement vehicle, where you're, you know, you know, you're working 30 hours a week and you want to leave your job and do this full time? I think that's the first thing. What are your goals? Or are you a high income earner like a doctor or a lawyer and you don't have the time and the bandwidth to dedicate it? Well, go out there and maybe you can become a general partner on deals. So first thing I think mm. is you need to set your goals and what you're looking to do. We overestimate what we can get done in a year, but we vastly underestimate what can get done in five years. You know, our first 18 months, goose egg. But within five years, we had 1,500 units because we had the clarity of what we wanted to do. So first mm. thing, set upon okay. what goals and what you're trying to accomplish. I think the next thing is select that market. Focus in on one market, especially if you're new, because you're going to really need to create those relationships. In business and in real estate, relationships are so key. Getting with in front of the brokers is really important. Doing property tours is really important. That's why if you decide today to start multifamily, you're going to need a good 60, 90 days, maybe even 180 days, let's say, to get all of this stuff going. And by that time, the market cycle then has changed. That's yeah. why it's never a long time to get into it. So you've got your goals and you've got your market. Then you start networking with those brokers and getting on those property tours. And then obviously the education aspect. 
underwriting, looking at deals, taking, taking a look at all that stuff. But it has to start with you. You're the first one, like I said for myself, I knew multifamily was the right thing for me because I had the full-time job. I wanted to do something part-time with the intention of within two to three years to leave the restaurant and to scale into multifamily. So that's why I selected multifamily. I selected Knoxville. I selected the submarkets in Knoxville. And then I guess Jake is probably gonna talk about the buy right criteria, but we had a criteria of what kind of assets really worked for us. A deal for Jake and Gino is not a deal for Josh. It, you know, it can and can't be. Josh may have different goals, may have different timeframes, may have different, you know, Balance sheets, Josh may have a ton of money. Jake and Gino didn't have a ton of money starting. So those deals look a lot different starting than they do now. Yeah, no, Gino, 100%. Okay. That's, that's, where, that's where I wanted to go with that. Because I think ultimately clarity as an entrepreneur will set you free. And what Gino was referring to in our first book, uh, we wrote about buy right, manage right, and finance right. And we really think that is the three pillars to sound multifamily investing. It's a, it's a framework. Once you buy it, that's done. You know, once you finance it, we're probably fixing for a minimum of 10 years. And then it all hones around that management. But you need to have proper buy right criteria. What do I mean by that? How big of a market are you looking at population wise? What do you need? What is the median income of that submarket or track that you're purchasing? Okay. What is the vintage of the asset that you're comfortable with taking down? The list goes on and on. But if you get clarity there, you can quickly remove deals off your desk when they don't make sense. So you're not wasting time with them. And then the ones that fit those, you know, criteria that you're, you're underwriting for, and then they, they meet the, the, uh, the metrics for your returns. That's what makes it easy. And then the brokers are not wasting your time if they're giving you, you know, units that have uh, window units and they, they, you know, they have older electrical. Okay. Maybe that's not on your list. You want, we only do central heat and air. We want washer dryer hookups in the units, whatever you set that criteria that works for you, then you're going to have a better broker relation. Uh, so when the deals come through, you're going to close quickly because that's what they want. They want to be able to give you a deal that they think, think fits. You don't give them a fucking hard time and you close the deal. That's how this relationship will work and you'll get more deals fed to you. So it's very important. I am Josh Felber. You are watching Making Bank. Get out and be extraordinary. Thank you for listening to Making Bank. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and sharing is caring. Follow Josh Felber on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram for more. You can also listen to Making Bank on Amazon Alexa, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and watch on Apple TV, Success Thinkers Network, Amazon Fire, and YouTube.